Speaking of which, our, our passage this morning here at West Hills, we're, we're making our way through 1 Peter, and we are nearing the end, believe it or not. We'll be finished with 1 Peter here before Easter, and then move on into 2 Peter a little later on in the spring. But uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, which talks about elders. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Please be seated. Most of you know the part of our family story that goes back 36, 37 years ago when our firstborn son, Jesse, was diagnosed with leukemia when we were living in California. And yes, that is me in the middle. I have changed just a little bit. But those are pictures of when Jesse was in Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. Again, this was 30... 36, 37 years ago when treatments for leukemia were kind of in their experimental stages. And so Jesse was exposed to varying degrees of different chemotherapy regimens and radiation and bone marrow aspirations and spinal taps. It was a grueling time for brand new parents. And then we had another baby boy who was just, uh, what was he at that point? Maybe six months old or so taking care of him, and we were far, far from home, uh, families in Michigan. And so those were hard days. There was one day in particular that I remember so vividly when Chuck Gross, who was the chairman of our elders in Thousand Oaks, California, showed up at the hospital. This was a few days into the, into the diagnosis. <clears throat> he came in. He was an executive who worked for an insurance company downtown Los Angeles. He was all decked out in his suit, ready to go to work with his briefcase in, in hand, and I figured he'd just come by just to check on us, see how we're doing, maybe pray with us, and he did all those things, and then he proceeded to sit down in his chair and take off his coat and loosen, loosen his tie, and I said, Chuck, what are you doing? And he said, I would just like to spend the day with you if that's all right. That's what an elder looks like. Besides the guy in green, and those are the kinds of things that our elders do as well. An elder is someone who takes care of the flock, someone who tends the souls of the sheep, the littlest ones, the ones that are growing through stages of life, the ones that wander off and get lost, the ones that need to be fed and nurtured and taught, and the elderly sheep who maybe don't move nearly as quickly as they once did, all of them. Shepherds are needed to tend the flock of God. 
The Bible's pretty clear that God expects for his people to be well cared for. We're going to see that this morning. He expects for those who are put in charge of leading the flock to care very carefully for the sheep. Peter addresses elders in this passage, those who are called to take care of God's church through their leadership. Men who are called and appointed by God, recognized by a local body of believers to be the shepherds, the under-shepherds, to give the care and protection to the flock. Now, as you all know, there are various leadership paradigms in society, right? Even represented here in this room, there'd be a variety of leadership paradigms that some of you function with when you are working in society. And the assumption can be that eldering is like one of those. For example, eldering is like running a company, or eldering is like managing a project, or maybe even eldering is like commanding a platoon. Depending upon the training and the experience of the elders, that's what they may be, may be inclined to bring with them into their leadership in the church. And so, for example, on our elder council, you have individuals who work in the business sector. You have a lawyer, an economist, a licensed counselor, and they each work with various leadership paradigms, depending upon their work. And while aspects of all of those may be helpful, the model of leadership that's laid out for us in the Bible is very unique because the church is very unique. It isn't a company. It isn't a school. It's not a team. It's not a platoon. It's the body of Christ. It's children, men, women, young people, people of all ages, people of different backgrounds, people of different life situations, all different kinds of needs, financial, physical, emotional, relational, and of course, definitely spiritual needs of the flock. And so the metaphor that God chose for those who would lead and care for his people is that of a shepherd. It shows up more than 500 times in the Old Testament and New Testament. It's by far the dominant biblical model for spiritual leadership in the church that you find all the way through the Bible. The elders here at West Hills, we're currently going through a book. The title of the book, interestingly, is They Smell Like Sheep. Good title for a book. I asked the guys uh, at one of our meetings if any of them had agriculture in their background because I don't. And while a couple of them had some aspects of farming, none of them had ever worked with sheep. I think Kevin Cleason came the closest. He had some cattle experience, as well as having spent some time in his earlier years with hogs, Um, a time in his life of which he has fond, fond memories, I'm sure. But none of us has any sheep experience. Very different from Peter's day. In the book that we're reading, the author writes this, In Bible times, the shepherds were as common and familiar to most Middle Easterners as are cell phones and supermarkets to modern-day Americans. Almost anywhere in the Bible world, eyes that lifted to gaze across the landscape would fall upon at least one flock of sheep. The family often depended upon sheep for their survival. A large part of their diet was milk and cheese. Occasionally, they ate the meat. Their clothing, their tents were made of wool and skin, and their social position often depended upon the well-being of the flock. So let's try to get our heads 
and our hearts around this whole concept of church leaders being under shepherds. Those of us who are called here at West Hills to serve as elders, we need to keep thinking about what it means. That's why we're reading the book, They Smell Like Sheep. That's especially why we're reading this book, the Bible. And all of the rest of you need to understand and appreciate the role that a good elder is to play in a healthy church so that you can hold us accountable, so that you can pray for us, and so that you can understand how God has designed the church. So we begin by acknowledging what the Bible teaches, and that is that we have a shepherd God. We have a shepherd God. We find that picture of God all throughout the Psalms. Psalm 80, verse 1, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. 78, He led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Psalm 28, O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Psalm 95, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And of course, Psalm 100, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And probably the passage that you're most familiar with, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Now, obviously, there were other first century vocations besides shepherds. I mean, you had merchants and carpenters and builders and farmers. You had doctors and lawyers and bankers and money changers. You had shopkeepers and butchers and bakers and soldiers and sailors. Fishermen, scribes, priests, tax collectors, craftsmen. You can make a long list of first century Palestinian vocations. But you never find in the Bible, the Lord is my carpenter, or the Lord is my banker, or the Lord is my lawyer, God forbid. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. <clears throat> or give ear, O doctor of Israel, or we are his people, the fish in his sea. You don't find any of those. No, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. I like this combination that Isaiah puts into this verse, chapter 40. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. This is Yahweh. He comes with might. <clears throat> his arm rules for him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, that means close to his heart, and gently lead those that are with young. So get this, the ruling arm is the carrying arm. The one who comes with might is the one who gathers the lambs in his arms. The one who rules is the one who carries them close to his heart. See, friends, anywhere else, I think the combinations of images that you have in those two verses would seem very, very strange. But they're not at all strange with God. The Lord God comes with might, tending his flock like a shepherd. We have a shepherd God. But then secondly, 
In the New Testament, we learn that we have a shepherd savior. And it stands to reason if, 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 if in the Old Testament, God is portrayed as the shepherd of Israel, that in the New Testament with the incarnation, the Son of God taking on flesh, that we will find an even fuller expression of the idea of God being a shepherd. And that's exactly what you find. It begins with Christ's birth. When King Herod found out, he heard the rumors that there, a new king had been born, and he got really troubled about this, and so he asked the Jewish leaders, where is this Messiah person supposed to have been born? And it says in Matthew 2, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then at the end of his life, when Jesus was preparing the disciples for what was about to happen, he was going to be arrested, he was going to be tried, he was going to suffer, be scourged, crucified. He was preparing them. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, the most extensive teaching by Jesus that you find where he not only identifies himself with being a shepherd, but takes the full responsibility of being a shepherd is in John chapter 10. These are the words of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold not just Israel. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and so there will be one flock and one shepherd. In the book that we're reading about shepherds in Israel, something that might be new to us, it was new to me, is the idea that each shepherd's voice would be responded to by his sheep. And they each had their own call. One might be a yip, 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 Another one might be, hoot, hoot, hoot. Maybe deeper, hoot, hoot, hoot. But they each had their own distinctive call, and the sheep would only respond to the call of their shepherd. And so when Jesus says, they hear my voice, they respond to my voice, he's talking about a sheep. Because many, many people do not respond to the voice of Jesus. They don't hear his voice. They don't hear his call. Like so many of you do. And by the way, in Christ's comments, don't miss the fact that in making such comments as these, saying, I am the good shepherd, he's equating himself with the shepherd of Israel in the Old Testament. He's claiming deity for himself even there. Now, the other New Testament writers pick up on Jesus being the shepherd. For example, Hebrews 13. And may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. And so the writer of Hebrews describes our Lord Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep. And then Peter, back in chapter 2, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So do you see the, the predominance of this image, this metaphor throughout the Bible? 
And so in the Old Testament, Yahweh is the shepherd of Israel. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In the New Testament, Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Now, before we get to point three, where we're going to talk about, point four, we're going to talk about the, the role of elders. We've got to acknowledge the fact that God calls and appoints men to be his under-shepherds, but we've got to remind ourselves of the fact that historically, when God has put men in charge of tending his flock, whether prophets, priests, or kings, it didn't turn out so well. You've got a lot of really, really bad shepherds in Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You have shepherds who were idolaters, adulterers, who were greedy, selfish, who were deceptive, who didn't protect God's people from false gods and false teaching. And so what you find in the Bible is point number three, there were bad shepherds and good shepherds, but friends, on your outline, circle the word bad, because most of them were exactly that. For example, over the course of its history, Israel and Judah had 39 kings, and the kings were considered shepherds. Of the 39, only four were considered to be good Another four were mixed. They started out good, then they went bad. And so of the 39, 31 are described as having done evil in the eyes of the Lord. All those things that I said, idolaters, adulterers, greedy, selfish, deceptive, etc., etc., etc. And so Jeremiah says in chapter 10, for the shepherds are stupid, And do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. And then in chapter 25, Jeremiah talked about the punishment of the shepherds. Wail, you shepherds, and cry out, roll in ashes, you lords of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and dispersion have come. You shall fall like a choice vessel. No refuge will remain for the shepherds, nor escape for the lords of the flock. A voice, the cry of the shepherds. And the wail of the lords of the flock, for the Lord is laying waste their pasture. And then in chapter 50, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. How ironic is that? My shepherds, their shepherds have led them astray. As if if sheep need any help being led astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And yet here you have shepherds who are leading God's people astray. You go to Ezekiel chapter 34. We won't take the time to read it. Ezekiel 34, very, very similar words where God tells Ezekiel to prophesy against the shepherds. And so as you can see, God takes very, very seriously the care of his flock. 
This is no small thing to God. And rightly so. I mean, let's try to paint a picture for a minute. Imagine being a parent with young children. Now, some of you don't have to imagine that at all. You are parents of young children. But for the rest of us, imagine you're going to be gone for a week. You have to go on a business trip. You need for someone to take care of your kids while you're gone. You lay out exactly what you need for them to do. You got to get the kids up in the morning, got to get them dressed. Maybe if they're babies, you got to you know, change their diapers, get, you know, bathe them, feed them, everything, the, whole, the whole list. Get them on the school bus, get them off the bus, make sure they're okay. If they get sick, here's the doctor's numbers to call, emergency numbers. The whole nine yards, because you're a loving parent, you, you care immensely about your children. So you don't, you don't leave a thing off the list. But you return to find out that they did a terrible job. They didn't feed them. They didn't bathe them. One of your kids got sick, had a fever. The person put in charge didn't do anything about it. Your youngest spilled her milk, and she was yelled at and sent to her room without supper. And then one of the neighbors found your three-year-old wandering down the streets. And you come home and you find all of this out. How would you react? You see, God expects for those whom he calls to care for his flock to do so with tremendous care. Great tenderness. Watching out for, feeding, nurturing, tending, protecting from predators, the wolves and the lions, and protecting them from thieves, sneaking in and stealing them away. Taking care of all of the sheep, the smallest lamb, to the oldest of the flock. So Peter addresses some contrasting motives here in wanting to be an elder in a church based upon what I just described as what elders are called to do. So let's look at some of the motivations that Peter talks about. He makes the contrast between an under-shepherd elder being compelled to do his job versus being willing and eager to do his job. Not under compulsion, verse 2, but willingly as God would have you. And so the question is, does a man feel compelled for the wrong reasons? Or is he willing and eager to serve as an elder? And you stop and you think, well, why might elders lead out of a sense of, of compulsion? In other words, they don't want to do it. And they're having to be forced to do their job. What would cause that? Several reasons I thought of you might add to the list. One would be fear. They're afraid to deal with a difficult issue. They're afraid to confront a problem. They're afraid to get help in addressing a certain situation. They'd rather not. It's not their temperament. It's not not the way they're wired. They're afraid of the repercussions. They're afraid what might happen. And so they avoid it. They have to be compelled. Come on, we got to do this. We've got to talk to this person. We've got to set up this meeting. We've got to address this problem. Another would just be flat-out laziness. In the Old Testament, you had lazy shepherds, not wanting to give it the effort that it requires to be an under-shepherd of a flock. Another would be other priorities. They've got their own life that they're taking care of, all the stuff going on in their own life, and shepherding becomes very, very secondary. 
They see other things as being more important. And then another that I thought it was just apathy. They, they just don't really, really don't care what happens to the flock. Just sort of let it be. Now, Peter says you don't want elders who have to be compelled or forced to do their job. And friends, this is why a church should never, ever pressure a man to become an elder. Say, boy, we just really need you. I, mean, I know, I know this. You, you don't, I know you don't feel like, but we really could stand to have, we need another elder. Would you just step in, just, just give it a couple years? No, never do that. The man will regret it. His wife will probably regret it. Because that's another piece of having a willing and eager elder is to have a very willing and supportive wife. Peter says that an elder needs to be both willing and eager to serve as an under-shepherd to God's flock. Another contrasting motivation for the good of oneself versus for the good of the flock. It comes out in verse 2, not for shameful gain. Not for shameful gain do you do this. In other words, is he doing it for his own personal gain, whether it's monetary or otherwise? Somehow he, he wants to gain from this. Maybe besides monetary, it might be social standing. Maybe it looks good in the community to be an elder in a church. Maybe it looks good at, at, at where you work. Yeah, he's really active in his church. No, that's not your motivation. Now here, I think Peter probably is especially referring to monetary gain. Addressing those elders who are to be paid for their service. And Paul speaks to the fact that some elders are to be paid. 1 Timothy 5, the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And so some elders, those for whom the preaching and teaching ministry or whatever every other ministries is their sole vocational responsibility, are to be paid for what they do. But this must never be one's primary motivation. Because if that's why you're doing it, you should be doing something else. You say, well, why is that? Well, for a variety of reasons. Number one, it, 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 feeds, a, it feeds a selfish heart. But secondly, if the person, especially who's doing the preaching and teaching and leading, is, causing, is doing it for, for gain, it can cause the one who is doing that to bring messages from the pulpit that will cause the people to really like him rather than preaching the whole counsel of God, regardless of whether God's people like it or not. The temptation can also be to make sure that you're not stepping on the toes of those who have the biggest pocketbooks, the ones who write the biggest checks. Got to keep them happy. Paul spoke to this issue in several of his letters, 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed for God is our witness. 1 Timothy 3, an overseer must be above reproach, not a lover of money. 2 Timothy 3 is where Paul warned Timothy that in the last days there would be false teachers who would be lovers of money. And Titus 1, an overseer as God's steward must not be greedy for gain. <clears throat> There's another contrasting pair of motivations for serving as an elder, and that's where you are lusting for power versus leading by example. Verse 3, 
not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You're probably familiar with the quote, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's attributed to John Emmerich Edward Dahlberg Acton, also known as Lord Acton, much easier to remember. It's from a letter that he wrote to Bishop Creighton in 1887. The idea had been penned nearly over 100 years earlier by British Prime Minister William Pitt, who said in a speech to the House of Lords in 1770, quote, unlimited power is apt to corrupt the minds of those who possess it. It's a very great statement just not quite as catchy as Lord Acton's, which goes to show that if you can turn a phrase, even if somebody else originated it, you get the credit for it. Power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's exactly what happened with many of the kings of Israel and Judah, as well as lots of political leaders, probably the vast majority of political and world leaders throughout history. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Peter's telling us here that even at the level of local church leadership, the motivation can be to gain influence, power, prestige, control. It can be to feed your ego. It can be to serve one's pride rather than to serve God's people. And so Peter says, not domineering over those in your charge, not not using this as a power posture, an ego trip, but being examples to the flock. And so elders should be examples of humility instead of pride. Humility versus pride. He says in verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, and that includes the elders, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All of you be clothed with humility, especially the elders. Especially the elders should be clothed with humility as examples to the rest of the flock. And then they should be examples of gentleness versus harshness. I get this from Paul's statement in 1 Thessalonians 2. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So there you've got another picture of a great elder like a nursing mother caring for her newborn. Take that image and put it on eldership. Gentleness does not mean weakness. Gentleness does not mean cowardice. Gentleness means they are exercising their authority with the tenderness, the gentle care of a loving mother, the tenderness of a shepherd caring for the lambs. So those are the marks of a godly leader that Peter chooses to emphasize. Now, if you wanted to do a more extensive study of eldership, the other passages, the qualifications for elders are in 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, where you could do a long list of all the qualifications that elders are to be held to. And so, as you can see, elders who faithfully serve as under-shepherds, stand in sharp contrast to the elders described by, by 
Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They're going to be men of godly character, flawed men, imperfect men, men with weaknesses, but they'll be men with godly character. They will be in the dark, what they profess to be in the light. They will not be selfish. They will seek out the weak. They will give the job the time that it requires. They will visit the sick. They will bind up those who are suffering. They will do all that they can to bring back those who have strayed. They will seek out the lost. And they will do it all with gentleness and with grace. In Acts chapter 20, Paul calls the elders of the church at Ephesus, men that he loved, to come see him. Ephesus is in, is in western Turkey, modern-day Turkey, to come to him when he was at Miletus. Miletus is just a few miles south of Ephesus. And he tells them when they come that this is the last time that they are going to see him, that the Lord had shown him that he would be imprisoned and that he would suffer because of the gospel. As you can imagine, it was a very, very emotional encounter between Paul and these men who served as elders in Ephesus. In his speech to the elders, there's one statement that stands out to me. He says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Be diligent about yourself. Pay careful attention to the flock. Be diligent in your care for the flock, because that's what elders are called to do. Because this is the flock for which the Lamb of God laid down his life. The church of God was obtained. The church of God was purchased with nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is no small thing to care for God's flock. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed with a group of elders who love the Lord, who love the church, and who, with all of their flaws and weaknesses, genuinely desire to serve you well. Thank God for your elders. Encourage them. Pray for them. Pray that your elders will pay close attention to their own lives. Pray that your elders will take close attention and tend to their marriages, to their character and their integrity as men of God, who are appointed and called by God and recognized by you to lead this flock of his. And then together, we will be a church that brings God the glory that he deserves. Amen. This morning, as you take the bread and the cup for communion, Remember the chief shepherd of the sheep, Jesus, who laid down his life 
And a shepherd would basically bring the sheep into the fold and then lay across the entrance, the opening to the, to the, to the fold as the one who would protect. He would lay down his life so that anybody who would get to the sheep would have to cross through or over him. Jesus laid down his life not just in that fashion, but he laid down his life in that fashion for the sheep. As you take the bread and the cup, remember Christ. But then also, could I ask you to say a prayer for your under-shepherds, for those who tend the flock here at West Hills, that we could do so in a manner that would bring God glory and would be for the good and care and protection of this flock of His. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for your word O shepherd of Israel, we give you praise and thanks. This is how you want us to think of you, Yahweh, the great shepherd of his people. The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. He makes us to lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our souls. We praise you, Lord Jesus. You indeed are the good shepherd. You know your sheep. You've called us. We hear your voice and we follow. today we honor you. We remember how you laid down your life for us. Thank you for the bread and for the cup. We love you, Lord. We pray in Christ's name.